I don't think the coaching is about that one hour that you spend with the person. It's what you do after that one hour for the rest of your life. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm J.R. Flatter. I'm here with my co-host, Lucas. Hello. And our distinguished guest, Veronica Lawrence. So glad to have you. I know we tried this once before, but the connectivity wasn't allowing us to, to do it. So here we are again. I'll just remind everybody and all the listeners and even our distinguished guests that this is a program about building a coaching culture. So building from a leadership development perspective, coaching from a coaching accreditation and coaching perspective, and then culture from a culture development perspective. And it's my understanding, you could tell us more about yourself in a second, that you're a subject matter expert in a lot of those areas. So we're really excited to have you. Just to remind you, our listeners are leaders of complex organizations that are working now in the 23rd year of the 21st century in a hyper-competitive labor market and trying to recruit and retain the world's top talent. So with that, I'll pass the floor to you, Veronica, and just let you brag a little bit about yourself and what you're doing and perhaps your area of expertise. So over to you. So JR and the team, Lucas, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I'm glad that we're able to to connect better this time. And um, this bragging thing, it's kind of hard for me. I can say that I was active duty Navy for 24 years working at the Pentagon level when I retired, part of the Inspector General team. And then I joined TIBC shortly after I retired. I have a background in uh, industrial psychology, DEI, and change management. So it's a few things um, in the back burner there, but I think that the biggest gift as a leader and 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 as people is to be able to coach, mentor, and develop those who work with us so that they can take our place in the future. So that's why I'm so excited about the idea of a cultural coaching because we're developing the critical thinking and analytical skills of our workforce so that they can, you know, lead the torch forward once we, we move on. So talk to us a little bit more about, if you would, the field of industrial organizational psychology. What's that all about? So I think a lot of people think about uh, that with a lot of the HR work that happens behind the scenes. You know, how do you advertise, select, onboard? How do you create position descriptions, job descriptions? But one of the things that I really like about the industrial psychology field is the ability to measure employee satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And so how happy they are with the work that they do, it kind of manifests on their motivation how engaged they are, how committed they are, and how they bring return to investment to organizations by bringing the best version of themselves to work. So how does psychology impact culture? Well, the measuring tools that we use into psychology, the behavioral piece of it that focuses on how people interact together, how we bring people of diverse backgrounds, people of diverse social identities coming into an organization. And it's it's basically, you know, volunteer selection. We come in and hire people. We don't plan to hire a specific group of people. We hire to a specific skill. And I think when you think about psychology is what makes us work better together, what makes us feel like we're 
accomplishing something. We talk about motivation, engagement, belonging, commitment, and development. And so those things play a great part in in our, in our environment and also in the culture, right? Because how we believe or see others, how we feel about others kind of shows up in how we behave at work. So I said once and probably say it again, we're in the 23rd year of the 21st century. How's the workforce different now? And Lucas, I know you're part of that millennial group. I'll ask you first, what does culture mean to a millennial in the workplace? You think about what Veronica was talking about with the critical thinking and, you know, the motivational aspects. And and I think part of the motivation, what helps there is like, you know, having a little bit of autonomy and, and people talk about how they don't like being micromanaged all the time. And, and that's something that I feel like our generation is more sensitive to. It's you don't want to be told exactly how to do something, but you want the goals to be ahead of you. So, you know, you have the vision that your leader wants you to work towards, but you have some, you know, leeway in how you're going to figure it out. And that's why that critical thinking aspect is so important, I think, because if you're going to give somebody that autonomy, you have to know that, you know, they're going to figure some things out without going back to you like every five minutes. So, Mm -hmm. So over to you, Veronica, as you work across the generations, and you mentioned DEI earlier, diversity, equity, and inclusion. As you work across the DEI sphere, of influence. What are your thoughts on how do we bring us all together? Well, I think first we need to understand that we're living in a unique time with five different generations are working mm-hmm. in the workplace, right? And every generation has a set of beliefs and an environment that develop how they behave. And then you have all of that in one location or, or trying to accomplish multiple goals. And so as a leader, I think we have to be very diverse and have a lot of tools in, in our kit to be able to bring the best out of different people with different motivations. And I don't mean this just as a someone of a different race or somebody from a different gender. I think that there's diversity in the way that we think and the way that we bring people around. And um, being able to bring the best out of everyone, like Lucas, you're probably on my son's generation. <laughs> he feels like I micromanage and I don't let him make his own mistakes. And so I got to say that I'm, I'm not oblivious to the fact that we have to to use different tools available to us as leaders to, to make sure that every person can bring the best version of themselves. Culture is very complicated in that a lot of times people think, well, you know, culture is it's interchangeable with other things. What people believe how they feel, how they feel about the collective norms, how they feel about values, and how they think the leadership applies those uh, procedural justice, distributional justice, and things of that nature shape the culture of the organization. And so I think it is a challenge. I think it is a talent. And again, having five different generations with different motivations makes it even more interesting to be more inclusive. I think that we have to first understand that people are different first, and then we can work on the how inclusive are we. And when we're including people, hopefully they will feel like they belong in the organization and stay for the long haul. I would be curious to hear your insights, both of you actually. I have my own opinions on this and maybe I'll share them with you in a sec. How much of what we think is difference in generation, even, well, I'll stick with generations, is age-related? Because I remember being 15 and now I'm 60. 
I know I think and act very differently now than I did then. Lucas is exactly 30 years younger than me, so he and I was always going back and forth on what does that 30 years mean? And will he think and act a lot like me when he's 30? I guess I should start asking myself, are you acting like I was when you were born? <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, I go back to Shakespeare, the seven stages of life. And, you know, I'm now the, the bespeckled elder behaving and thinking very differently. So I'll go to you, Veronica. What do you think? Is it age-related or is it actually, actually generational or, or some mixture of both? Well, that's just so funny because at the beginning of my career, I probably thought it was like generational, right? Like people from this age behave this way. And I worked for a three-star admiral that was more hip than Lucas. Lucas, I know you're here, but I'm telling you, the guy wanted every bit of technology. I mean, we couldn't keep up with him. He was so innovative, so impressive in the way that he did things. And he developed think and then got away from it and, and talked about inclusivity. So I believe that the environment in which we create kind of shapes some of our values, kind of shapes some of the ways that we behave. But I think it's also a choice of where you stay. You know how people say 50 is the new 30 and 30, mm. whatever those things are. <laughs> Nobody gave the message to my body because I'm still <laughs> feel like I'm pushing 50, right? But in reality, I think that the developing of the mind of the skill and being able to be understanding and open that not everybody grew up in the same environment. It's important. And I'll give you an example. My great aunt, who was part of the Great Depression, she doesn't let any leftover food go mm. to waste. I mean, her behavior is like we we had to save, 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 because mm. in that time of need, that's what she learned. And she still behaved that way. In other areas, she's pretty hip. Like, hey, send me an email. I'm like, whoa, mm. wow. And so... I think that our environment affects a lot and it's called socialization for those in the industrial psychology ground. The, the, the experience that we have is dictated by the socialization that we have. We bring that to mm. the workforce, but we can develop skills, no matter who we are, to, to be able to understand others and to connect to them. Not bring them to where we are, but go to where they are. And I think that's a trick for leadership too. And in the military, I work with a lot of people that it was like, it's hierarchy. You either get to what I am or you're not going anywhere, right? Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's very straightforward. And the biggest challenge happened when the younger people came in and started challenging and wanting, wanting autonomy, wanting not to be micromanaged. And, you know, it's a challenge, but I, I think it's not driven by age. It's the, the age of your brain, right? Mm. How you analytically develop and connect to others. Yeah, somebody mentioned yesterday in a, in a session we were teaching that and she was a pedagogical psychologist and she said fully 10% of people never break out of adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> I know a couple, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's kind of frightening actually. <laughs> Lucas, how about you? You're working across generations. We teach different generations. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think part of it, it's it is age related, but then also the environment. Like if you think about when I was a child, when I was 10 years old, nine years old, 9-11 happened. And it's like, so you think about, I mean, mm -hmm. you think about how historical events might have affected different groups of people. Mm -hmm. And then like thinking about now, like a 10 year old during the pandemic, how that might affect them. And then the rest of it is kind of like, okay, like what are the pop cultural touchstones, mm. which is kind of more superficial. But And then on top of that, I was raised by your generation and you specifically. So it's like our generation is going to be different because you're not raising us exactly how you mm -hmm. were raised. So mm -hmm. I guess I'm leaning towards the environmental side more than the age group side. 
Yeah, I love Veronica. I love your idea of how mature is my brain. That's great. <laughs> and then Lucas, the environment is certainly relevant. So we do a lot of psychometric testing. I would imagine you're quite versed in that, Veronica. I riff on IO psychology because there's a lot of overstatement of the ability of those tools. Right. I'd like to hear your expert insights into that, if you don't mind. Oh my goodness, you almost going to the psychology of leadership, right? I almost yeah. feel like we're going to that direction. <laughs> is it a trade? Is it a skill? Is it is it yeah. teachable? Is all those other things? I think that that you know when you have tools, they they sometimes have some science behind it that can be used as a check engine light to dig deeper and find out what what, what works and what doesn't work. I'll tell you this: that there is some some good value and good use to it, but it's not the the be all type of environment. I went to a DOD school and it was a tough school. It was 84 days and it was about DEI and behavioral science. They did a Myers-Briggs before we came over and they grouped us by by groups that would never get along and make mm. us work together and solving problems for 84 days. Hardest days of my life. So mm. they did something right because there was something fundamentally different about our values that showed up in that test that when we showed up in real person created conflict, which was on purpose, right? They wanted us to purposely be in conflict so that we learned how to go to, you know, Tucker's model of, of you know, the one from Normie performing, storming sure. and things mm -hmm. like that. We couldn't get out of storming. I mean, mm -hmm. it was, it was that training pain to learn to get out of storming with different, especially when your values and your sentiments start to come out and the difference of introvert and extrovert, someone that it's a, a filler. I'm a, I'm a touchy-feely person and I'm in there with the judgment, you know, the guy that's the judging or things like that. So I think if you're speaking of those type of tools, um, there's the pace, there's disc, there's many of those tools that people use to see personalities. I think that they allude to some behavioral competencies, but mm -hmm. they doesn't mean that you can't behave outside it. And when I took that, that Myers-Briggs, for example, in 2013, I took it later and I had changed. I'm like, how 10 years, you know, like seven years later, I took it and I'm not the same letters, you know, mm -hmm. that I was before. Again, that makes me think, if that's what we're speaking about, that change happens by or the, how our brain matures and how we grow and how we change our critical thinking. How about you, Lucas? I know you've had a 360 assessment and a pretty in-depth feedback session. Was it helpful to you? I think it can be helpful um, if you kind of keep in mind that there's no one size fits all. And, you know, you can find out about yourself by analyzing yourself. And it's kind of a lens to do that because otherwise, you know, without constraints, it's hard to kind of figure out what you're going to analyze. So having the structure around it is helpful, but I wouldn't treat it as a be all end all, I guess. Yeah, I just did a 360 feedback yesterday and the 360 degree assessment is I rate myself on my perceptions of my leadership and then my bosses and my peers and my customers and my direct reports rate me also. And it gives us this in-depth perception of who we are as a leader, as a person. I always tell people that, number one, don't overinvest in this, mm -hmm. nor should you too easily dismiss anything. There's a lot of loud whispers in here. And once in a while, we'll see some shouting characteristic. Right. And then secondly, preference is not destiny. Right. And they're measuring our preference. Well, the personality profiles measure preference. 
the three sixties measure perception. So perception isn't a hundred percent reality, but then we go back to, okay, there's a gap. I see a lot of EQ gap, emotional intelligence gaps in senior leaders. And you know, how do we begin to change those perceptions and behaviors? So how is the world perceiving you? And then even how you perceive the world impacts your actions and impacts the world's actions with you. So mm-hmm. in some senses, perceptions are reality. But then if we do take action to change perceptions, we have to do it through behavior, changing right. our behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's tough, tough, tough stuff. Especially when, as human beings, we tend to come back to our comfort zones. That kind of reminds me of the Jahari window, you know, when we talked about those things. Yeah, talk um, to us about that because that's the second time in two days somebody's brought that up. Really? Yeah. Oh my God, you must have had a CCS in your team. <laughs> so we spend a lot of time at diverse, uh, diverse, Defense Equal Opportunity Management Institute, is now known as the Defense Cultural Institute, which is a DOD school. And a lot of the time, understanding that, I, I can't remember this quote, but it's a quote about, I'm not, I'm not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. And it's mm. so complex, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what the Jahari window does, is try to show you an alignment between those three things. And, and the 360s and, and things like that give us a vision of the blind spots, right? The spots that we don't see, that all they might see, and they might be unknown to us. And then if that's not who we are, I noticed that some leadership gets angry, rebuttal, dismissive, or combatic. Instead of saying there's a gap and I need to self-analyze and then I, and then align myself so I can come across to who I really am so that it's, uh, it's congruent. And so I think that there is a lot to learn from the Jahari window, the panels, and looking at what we don't know about ourselves that other people can see. I think my husband and my kids have a great vision of who I am that I don't see it until they tell me, Mom, you came across as this. And it's always good not to be defensive and not to get an attitude when there's a blind spot so that we can align ourselves to be better. If I don't want to be that person, then perhaps I shouldn't wear that uniform. It's the same thing with racist behavior. A lot of people says, well, I'm not racist. Well, some of your behaviors align with racist behavior, so don't wear the uniform. Align yourself with something that is inclusive, and then you come across as inclusive. So it's a work in progress, and I, I, I love that kind of work. So coaching in a coaching leadership style, I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't play one on TV either. No. But there's a lot of neuroscience going on in coaching. I think I have some hints about what that might be. I'd love to hear your insights on the neuroscience of coaching and what I would call the magic of coaching because. (laughs) Yeah, because you're using a big word neuroscience and I don't know much about, I mean, I know about the science, but I don't know the the principles and I don't want to speak out of turn. But I think that there's a deep misconception of what coaching is, specifically the people that are receiving the coaching. And I get a lot of the, well, you're going to tell me what to do, right? Or you're going to tell me how to think, right? Or you're going to tell me how to solve that problem. And I think what is important is is developing the skill of, of solving the problems so that I don't think the coaching is about that one hour that you spend with the person. It's what you do after that one hour for the rest of your life. So a lot of people say, I'm not going to pay that amount of money for coaching. Well, you might not pay for that hour, but if it's going to save you 10 years of suffering because you learn a skill that can help you out, that can change your habits and can make you a more effective leader, then it was money well spent. 
And so I think, and I don't want to talk about the financial aspect, but I'm just giving an idea of the value of coaching. It's not the 30 minutes. It's not the one hour. It's the skill that we develop collectively as a team that changes their behavior. And one of the things about coaching for me is finding the smallest expression of a goal so that you can execute it. And once you execute it for more than 21 days, perhaps it becomes a habit that changes your life. And so that's what's important to me about coaching. So Lucas, you're a coach. You've received coaching. What are are your thoughts? I guess on the neuroscience, it just reminds me of, you know, just faking a smile can bring serotonin and make you feel better, even Mm. if you know you're faking it. And (laughs) so like what Veronica just said about, it's not about that hour specifically. It can be like, even with running, you do like plyometric training, like you do weird stretching and skipping and stuff or sprinting to show your body how it might work when you're doing an actual run, but you're not like running as if you would in an actual run. So kind of like, Mm having that time to go outside of your comfort zone for an hour and feel, see how it feels and everything. I think that can be useful. So we talk about a coaching culture. And so we're still in a transition from what I would call a 20th century leadership style and 20th century cultures. In my humble opinion, the days of working in the same place for your entire life are gone. Mm -hmm. We all have stories of grandparents and friends whose parents worked in the same building, doing the same job for 50 years. I think those days are gone. Technology's just advancing too quickly. And so I think the, the Gen AA's who are coming after the Gen Z's, so the Gen Z's are already in college or they're in the workforce or they're grown already. Millennials are running the world right now. They're CEOs and professors. So we're transitioning into this 21st century leadership styles and 21st century cultures. And so when we say something like leading with a coaching style or building a coaching culture, what does that mean to you a leader as a leader, Veronica, but to you as a scholar and also a practitioner of your field, what would our listeners learn about what does it really mean to have a coaching culture? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I really think that one of the issues that I'm seeing a lot is the is that we say it's a coaching culture, but we're using the wrong language, right? Mm. You have to use the precise language of what it means, what is it going to accomplish, what is the outcome, and what is the benefit of, of, of a coaching culture. I think I have encountered a lot of organizations where where people say, we want to have the coaching culture, but they can't define it. They can't explain it. They can't mm-hmm. fill it and they can't leave it. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard when we don't know what it means to you and how it applies to me. Not as just the leader, but as the everyday person, right? Because it can be peer-to-peer coaching. It can be, you know, your, even your subordinate can tell you something about yourself that can help you and coach you to how better lead them. So I think looking at almost like a 360 vision of what coaching is like, not only coaching down, but coaching vertically, mm-hmm. coaching, you know, up and mm-hmm. down the chain. Oh, n- not the chain. I'm talking about military, but mm-hmm. in all levels so that it becomes part of the everyday. It's not just something that the leader does or the coach does. It's something that we all do. I- I've been coached by my 19-year-old son. Mm-hmm. You met him, Gerard, my biomedical engineer. I get coached by him all the time. 
And it's kind of hard because he doesn't, you wouldn't think he has the skills, but he understands that at that moment, he has a, something to give to me that will make me better connect to him. And mm. that becomes the culture of it's normal. Everyone does it, not just a few people. And I think that that's what we need to switch from the, it's just the only person that can coach me is the person who's walked those shoes or who's done that. You yeah. can learn, you have to have a learning heart and to be coachable. There are people that told me I had a, <laughs> I had a client who's like, I'm 71 years old. What can you possibly teach me or coach me about? And yeah. we have a great relationship now because we had a conversation about what his needs and dreams were for his retirement. And he's like, I'd never thought that somebody who was like 40 years younger than me, what 30, we even tell me anything. So how do we change the mindset? It's by being consistent, understanding what it is and using the right language and then demonstrating the behavior, in my opinion. Yeah. So as you're speaking, you're reminding me of Peter Hawkins Ooh. creating a coaching cult. Yeah. Yeah. He, I love that model he has. And the last two steps of the model are exactly what you're describing. It just becomes the way we do things here. And then the, the final step that Peter talks about is we even behave that way with all of our stakeholders, not just internally, but now externally. We're we're leading with a coaching style with our suppliers, with our stakeholders, with our customers. How about you, Lucas? What does it mean to create and lead as a, as a coach and create a coaching culture? Yeah, and I, I like where this is going because it's like when you say like magic or whatever, you want to peel that back and figure out what that means practically. And like, I think Veronica, um, that idea of like being able to knock down the barriers and like, okay, like next time I talk to somebody that's older than me, younger than me, looks different than me, different background, hopefully like I'm not going to have that same hesitation to communicate and have those conversations or work together. So I think like one of the things, like one of the outcomes of the coaching culture is just less barriers between mm. people that are yes. different from each other and just being more open. Yeah, I love that. So for me, it's all about, you mentioned it, a growth mindset, Veronica. And as a leader, what is my role and responsibility if I'm coaching from, or if I'm leading from a coaching place? It's to grow the person that I'm leading. Mm -hmm and that they're not the same person tomorrow. And so thinking, how might I use this opportunity to grow this person rather than just transactionally interact and say, you know, here's two pieces of bread and a piece of meat, go make a sandwich, right? Get into the place where, what actually should we think about and how, how do we grow together? So one of the things I would ask of you, Veronica, is, you're obviously a successful person, and a lot of our listeners are coming up, uh, thinking about how to break out, become exceptionally successful, not to be judgmental or anything, just they want to break out of the pack and be successful in whatever they're choosing to do. What What's one of your secrets of success? Whew, you got all kinds of tough questions today. Um <laughs> I think that one of the things I learned as I got a little older was authenticity and the importance to find your own 
way, right? I think there's so much in the media around us that tell us how to be, how to behave, who to become, and what success looks like. If you're not married by 30 and have like this fortune and this career and this and all these other things, that you're not successful. But you got to define it for yourself. What, the, what does that look like? And what do you need? And what skills can you use from the coaching, from leadership, from friendships, from, from education? I'm, I am pro-education 100%. So being the best version of yourself means understanding what you want, who you are. And that means the flaws, right? There's moments that you're like, oh, that wasn't the best version of myself. Let me just address mm-hmm. that. Let me improve that so that I can go through it. I, I always felt I went through the ranks of the military. I went to the, from E1 to E9. And as you know, only 1% of that of the community makes it to that. I think that what helped me was I never competed with people. I competed with standards. What's your standard? Mm. What is your expectation of me? What should I do to be a successful leader? Once I knew what the standards was, I was able to work with people and not compete with them. And that made me successful in many ways. And so I think that's important, understanding yourself, understanding your limitations and not competing with each other, but learning from each other and competing with the standards has been a lot easier for me than anything else. So that helped me. I love that. I just wrote that down. I'm going to borrow that. I'll, I'll always cite you. <laughs> no, you use it. Let's share. <laughs> it's, it's community pool. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So what are our traditions here is Lucas gets to ask the last question. What's on your mm. mind, Lucas? What do you need to know from Veronica before we leave? What's um, a book you've read or, mm. you know, even if it's a movie or anything that you've kind of experienced or consumed in the media that has kind of inspired you lately? We show conversations. How to have those conversations when stakes are high is one of my recent. They have crucial conversations, um, crucial confrontations, and crucial accountability. It's like a series. Oh, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> one of my. I also like at the speed of trust. I don't know if you guys read that one. It was one of my favorite as well. Uh, I think it's uh, Stephen Covey talking about how the cost, the financial cost of trust in the workplace. So those are the two books that I read recently that I thought it was important. But I like crucial conversations because if we don't understand that we're telling a villain story, we don't understand that we're telling a victim story or a clever story, we'll be unable to do use create a useful story that have all parts so we can be better people. So I, I like books. I read books all the time, but that, those were the ones that stick in my mind right now. So... Thanks for asking that. Easy question. That was easy. (laughs) (laughs) Great. What did we not ask you that you thought we would ask you? I I think that the conversation was organic. And I'm glad, Lucas, that you were here because you represent the younger generation (laughs) that we're talking about that's not here. So I think it was very, very complete. Yeah, I enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, we had a seminar we did in Seattle about three or four years ago. That's my alma mater, University of Washington. Oh, wow. For my undergrad work. And so they invited me back out and we had five generations in the room for three hours. Wow. And it was one of the coolest conversations I've ever been a part of. And we broke them into five groups and rotated five times. You could never be in the same group twice. And so you talked to five different groups across five different generations for three hours. And when they left, I said, you got to write on the board. What's the one thing that you'd like to like to tell us as you're leaving? And almost exclusively, it was, we are much more alike than we are different. Yeah, how incredible is that? That's nice. 
But that's the contact theory, right? You have to be in contact with somebody different oh, than you yeah. so that you can see mm. that we're not that much different. And so I love it. You said contact theory? Yes. It's that theory of Alaport where instead of, you know, in the, back in the 30s, how people were like, the more you deal with other people, the more racist you become. And what he, Alaport, Gordon Alaport found was that the contact theory is the opposite. The more you put different people in one place, with some common goals of getting to know each other, the less likely you have the stereotypes and the biases mm-hmm. and the questions and things like, oh, okay, I start to question yourself. So I, I like that one. No, that's incredible because I always ask a question. So I do a, a session called The Power of Communication, Ooh, that about a 90-minute session. And I start with the very first slide. It's a driver yelling at somebody out of his car. Why are drivers so rude to one another? And it's exactly what you just described. It's getting worse, by the way, lately. <laughs> it's because we're not interacting with each other. We don't have contact. I'm going to go do some homework on contact theory because I think you've put a name to exactly what I was trying to describe. There's a famous quote from Abraham Lincoln. I don't like that person. I need to get to know them better. Oh, wow. <laughs> I read Lincoln on Leadership. I didn't see that one. That's a pretty oh, yeah. good one. That was one of my first leadership books. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really good, right? God, I read that. Yeah, it's got to be 30 years old, if very close to it, right? All right, Veronica, thanks for being here. It's been amazing. Let's stay yeah. in touch. Definitely. Nice experience meeting you, and thank you so much for the opportunity, and I hope to see you again. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.